Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. So, Dr. Chan, we have Dr. King, our own Dr. Eva King from the Rhode Island State Health Lab today. Fun to have Dr. King on the podcast today. Dr. King, how are you today? I'm doing well, Dr. McDonald. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled to have you. It's been, it's you know, one of the things about the pandemic that's been kind of positive for me is getting to work more closely with people I've already worked with in the past. It's been really a privilege to work with you, Dr. Ewart, and others at the Rhode Island State Health Lab throughout the pandemic. Just, you know, I remember going down to visit during the early part of the pandemic and having that Star Trek moment for me when I saw a lot of the just really nifty equipment we have down there. It really is quite a um, high-tech center down at our State Health Lab, um, which is awesome. But before we get really start with our podcast, we always like to start with just getting to know you a little bit. Dr. King, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I can start with uh, telling you that I've been uh, in this position at the State Health Laboratories for about 15 years now, um, having gone through uh, various public health emergencies, but of course, none of them quite rivaled uh, what we are experiencing right now. Um, I'm actually a biochemist by training, uh, so this is something that I've uh, had to learn in a hurry. A lot of uh, virology, sequencing, new things for us to, uh, to deal with. Yeah, thank you, Dr. King, and thank you again for joining us. So I just wanted to echo Dr. McDonald's uh, comments about getting to know uh, folks at the health department a little bit better. And I know that we've worked together for years, but it's it has been fun to, to get to know you a little bit more and, and see the state health lab in action. And I do want to say, I think, I think one thing that many of us underestimated uh, was the importance of a state health lab in general. And I think as the pandemic, especially in the early days of the pandemic, it was it really fulfilled a key role uh, in the pandemic. So talk to us a little bit. What is a state health lab? Do all states have them? And what do you what do you do there? What did you do there before the pandemic? And then maybe sort of how you progressed during the pandemic here? Yes, um, all states have uh, a state laboratory, uh, sometimes more than one. We like to uh, think that we are a bit in a very um, we organize in a very efficient way because we have one single state laboratory that fulfills the role of multiple um, labs in other states. Um, so we have our public health laboratories, we have environmental laboratories, and we have forensic or um, crime laboratories here as well. So this is all bundled in one tiny uh, building Um kind of near the health department, for those of you who, uh, who know Providence. Um, it's the public health laboratories that uh, you're probably thinking of when, you, when you're talking about the state laboratory. And what we do in those labs is um, be on the lookout for new diseases, new viruses, new pathogens. And it's, I'm not actually necessarily referring to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, as we call it but also other novel um, influenza viruses and other pathogens that might uh, surprise us later on. And have in the past, um, I'm sure you remember H1N1 as uh, one of the more recent um, um, emergencies that we've um, responded to. Uh, for um, COVID-19, uh, we were here to find the very first case in Rhode Island. Uh, that date will... Uh, be forever etched in my brain of February 29th. 
it was announced publicly on March 1st, so we think of it as a, as a March occurrence, but it actually was on that February 29th. Uh, so we will be celebrating that anniversary every four years, probably. <laughs> um, it was really in the nick of time that we were ready to do it here in-house in our laboratories. Uh, if you recall back then, we were preparing for um, such occurrence, but um, the methodology, the testing methodology rolled out from the CDC labs uh, to state labs was um, originally flawed and unusable. So it had to be refashioned for something that we could actually use. So we validated that test method just in time to detect that first case on February 29th, 2020. Yeah, so when we did our first test, we actually did it in our state health lab. We didn't send it away to the Centers for Disease Control. We, we sent it to them for confirmation, but we actually did that first test here, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was done right here in our laboratories. It, at the beginning, CDC did have us send them all for confirmation, but that quickly um, got discontinued as we showed that we were receiving uh, or obtaining the same exact uh, test results. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think people forget that in the beginning, we actually were sending specimens for confirmation because it was a new test. We're learning about it. But when we get back to that test, it's often called a PCR test, which is a polymerase chain reaction test or a nucleic acid amplification test. So what are these tests anyways? Because I think that's one of those things that, you know, just to make sure clear, what are these actual PCR and AAT tests? What are they? Right. So uh, PCR tests, or we really prefer the, the nomenclature of NADS, nucleic acid amplification tests, are generally uh, tests that we use to detect infectious um, um, bacteria or viruses by amplifying the DNA or RNA. Um, in those pathogens. So we use them for multiple um, tests in our laboratory. They're not all strictly speaking PCR, which refers to a specific amplification technology. Uh, so NAT is actually a broader term. There are multiple different technologies for amplifying RNA and DNA. And right now at this point for um, SARS-CoV-2, we have probably 10 different tests um, in our laboratory simply because so many have been invented um, and implemented in different settings and also for different types of specimens um, that people might want to send to us. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Kane. And, you know, I do one thing that you've mentioned before, and it's one of my favorite th uh, analogies that you've made before, is, is thinking about these PCR tests as baking a pie. Right. And so it's it's not just like, a, you know, a, a test kit where, it, you know, you're one and done. It's really a, a multitude of supplies, of baking supplies that you need, of testing supplies. And if you're missing any one, then that's what then, then you can't do the test. And so I remember you talking about this during the beginning. I'm going to fully admit that I occasionally steal that analogy. Um, and, uh, and in the beginning, we were missing certain key supplies and we just couldn't do these, you know, the, this PCR testing. Uh, but I do, I do remember that, and I do use that from time to time. Right, right. It was an apt analogy, but I cannot take credit for it. It belongs to my friend um, in Minnesota, Joanne Bartkus, um, the state lab director there, who invented this. Dealing with frequent questions about how come we cannot do tests today, um, and comparing it to baking cookies, I thought it was originally. Perhaps it, it morphed into a pie over time. 
So the supply chain for many laboratory supplies uh, that are needed to complete that test, PCR test, um, and other tests for that matter, has been severely impacted. Um, so at the same time as people uh, couldn't find toilet paper in the stores, we also could not find many of the supplies that we needed to, to do our tests, from pipette tips to extraction uh, reagents and kits to actual PCR reagents. And those were actually probably the, the least um, impacted. But all along the lines, we really found out the hard way how difficult um, it is to assemble everything in, at the same time. We've never li really lived through anything like that. And this is actually one of the reasons why we have so many tests for, um, for COVID-19 in our laboratory. It's not so much that we enjoy having multiple tests. This was really pressed on us. That was one way to avoid some of the supply chain issues is by having switching from one platform to another. So we have bought additional equipment and we have stored and continue to store supplies and occasionally uh, have to resort to barter uh, uh, system when we uh, were trading some of the supplies that we happen to have with our neighborhood um, or neighbor, uh, neighbors in other states where we said, well, we have this reagent, can you trade us some other reagent that you, that you happen to have in abundance? And believe it or not, this continues to this day. There's still a shortage of uh, pipette tips for many of the automated mm. instrumentation that we use. I was going to say baking pies, baking cookies, baking anything sounds pretty good to me. Uh, let me ask you this, Dr. King, uh, as an expert in this field, you know, we rely so heavily on these PCR tests. And, and I think what you're alluding to is, is that PCR testing uh, is rather complicated, uh, really, you know, a, a revolutionary advancement uh, in medicine in general. But let me ask you this. How accurate are these PCR tests? If, if someone tests positive, do they have COVID for sure, if you think about COVID? And the flip side of that is if someone tests negative on a PCR test, is it 100% sure that they don't have COVID? Well, no test, we like to say no test is 100% accurate um, and sensitive. However, um, we like to think that PCR tests come really close. They certainly are very sensitive, which is a good thing because when you um, are detecting uh, those snippets of um, RNA uh, in the case of COVID-19, then, then it's likely there. Uh, the bad news is it might be there and it really does not, no longer has clinical significance. So occasionally, um, you know, people like to refer to it as a false positive, but they're not necessarily false positive uh, because they might just detect, pick up such uh, small quantities of RNA fragments that it's really not the entire virus that is capable of replicating, but it is, um, you know, some remnant RNA still um, present in the system. So that that superior sensitivity is is great because we will find it also at the early stages of the diseases when it is important to start isolating uh, patients uh, from others um, and prevent further infections. Um, that's why PCR is considered the gold standard for many, not just um, SARS-CoV-2, but for other um, pathogens as well. As you say, Dr. King, you remind me a little bit about the beginning of the pandemic in that regard about one of the things about SARS-CoV-2 is clinically because some people just aren't that sick, quite frankly, or just feel fine. They don't believe the test. 
you know, and I think that's where it gets to, well, I must be a false positive, but really it's extremely unusual to be a false positive. I mean, you remind me of that. Like early in the pandemic, I remember some of the first patients were like, no, I feel fine. I, you know, I was on a school trip. How could I possibly have this? You know, and it's like, all I have is a cold. And I think this is one of the things about PCR tests. It really is a good yes, no test. Um, it, it's not though really a quantitative test, is it? It, it? it really isn't to say like, well, gee whiz, you're positive. You're really positive. I mean, by the, they're really not set up that way, are they? So these tests can be um, quantitative, but they're really not set up uh, to be in, in uh, most laboratories. Um, so when we uh, when we say it's positive, it's you know it's a yes or no um, type of answer. Um, so with very sensitive tests, um, I should add you know the possibility of uh, contamination in the laboratory or along the testing process is actually amplified. No pun intended. Um, so so we we do we we can see instances where there is um, a contamination that happens along the line. So we're certainly not saying that false positives never happen, but you know they are quantitative. They are qualitative tests. Definitely. Yeah, they give us that that yes, no answer. So, I, you know, I want to move on to another topic, though. Like when we talk about variants of concern, you know, I think one of the things you hear about nationally and globally is this term variants of interest, variants of concern or variants of high consequence. It really it's about different forms of the SARS-CoV-2 and whether or not that matters to us. But really, one of the things that it gets to is the technology to help detect variants. In other words, really, it's about genomic sequencing. And I'm just curious. Why can't genomic sequencing be done on every specimen? Because I know we do it on some now in our state health lab, but why can't we do it in every one of them? Yes. So certainly we do do it at the state laboratory now, and we have worked with our partners to make sure as many uh, specimens as possible get sequenced to give us um, a good view into the genomic diversity and variant um, uh, prevalence in, in Rhode Island. Um, the, the main reason why we cannot sequence every single specimen is that some of them just don't have enough virus for us to sequence. Um, at this uh, stage, uh, the technology is such that it can be reliably sequenced with CT values of um, approximately uh, 30. So this is what we are using as the cutoff. Um, that's not to say this will remain uh, like this forever um, into the future, but that is what is being used by us and other laboratory attempting to sequence specimens. Let me ask you this, Dr. Kim. When we talk about, we just talked about PCR testing a second ago, and now we're talking about sequencing. I mean, when you sequence, as a lab director, when you sequence something, anything, is that is that just another PCR test or what's different about it? I mean, do we get, you know, do we get sequencing, you know, in a day? I mean, how does, what does sequencing evolve? Right, right. So that is actually quite different from PCR tests. So the similarity is that they uh, both tests uh, utilize the uh, RNA um, or DNA in other tests. Uh, but in the PCR test, you, you're really amplifying just a small portion of the, the RNA. With sequencing, you actually are getting the entire genetic code um, of the virus. Um, so you, you are able to see which parts of the RNA has mutated or changed over time, uh, producing a, a new product, if you, if you will, a new version of the virus that in some cases is less capable of infecting people or having different effects on people. But in, in some cases, it's actually more uh, transmissible. 
So that is what we worry about, uh, that we will be finding those, and we are finding them in Rhode Island and elsewhere, more transmissible um, variants that are uh, resisting treatment or evading uh, diagnostic testing. So, so, Dr. King, when we think about genomic sequencing, this really does feel like Star Trek medicine to me. How long has this technology been around to do this? Because I know we just acquired the technology, I want to say in the last month or two, um, but how long is it? Maybe it's been longer. I don't remember. But how long has this technology been around so we can actually sequence the genome, genome, the whole gene structure of a virus? How long have we been able to do that? So the technology has been around for, you know, probably a decade or, or longer. Um, in our state health laboratory, we have been actually doing what's called whole genome sequencing of um, enteric pathogens uh, for foodborne disease surveillance uh, for quite a few years. Uh, we have uh, switched over or added sequencing for um, SARS-CoV-2 in the last uh, month or two. Um, so we have been, we actually did have the technology. It was just not applied to this particular problem, this particular virus. Uh, sequencing of RNA is just slightly different than the DNA that we were uh, used to. So it, it took uh, a bit for us to get on board um, as we were putting the surveillance system together. I'm just curious, uh, you know, working with these COVID specimens and frankly, other, you know, infectious agents uh, that are out there. I mean, how safe is it to work with these things in the lab? I mean, has anyone to your knowledge ever been infected with COVID uh, from working with it in, in a laboratory setting like yours? What's the risk and what do you do to keep folks safe? Right. So we've had no uh, instances in our laboratory that we know of that people got infected in the laboratory. But of course, we have the, the entire setup to work with infectious um, agents in, in general, including a BSL-3 laboratory where we could um, actually culture the, the, the virus. So usually there are steps um, and uh, processes that are more dangerous than others. In our laboratory uh, for PCR, we don't have to use the BSL-3 lab, lab that we do have. However, we do have um, a whole lot of um, safety features in place. So it's the PPE that we, you know, everyone has learned about recently, but we have been using for a long time, the N95 masks, um, obviously um, uh, shields and, and lab coats and gloves. Uh, but we also have equipment, uh, specialized equipment for the purpose of um, isolating the specimen that we're working with from the individuals. So taking together these what's called engineering controls, the biological safety cabinets, and the PPE prevents um, others, um, our workers from, from getting infected from, whether it's, um, you know, HIV specimens that we receive or COVID-19 specimens or influenza um, or other types of um, infectious uh, pathogens that we getting here, we are uh, committed to assuring the safety of our employees. Yeah, thank you, Dr. King. Super interesting. And I, I will share quickly that as an infectious disease physician, one of the reasons I initially got interested in infectious diseases was uh, after reading The Hot Zone about Ebola and being interested in some of the uh, uh, that as an infection and, and potential. And I'm just curious. I'm going to I'm going to there's been a there's been a, a story circulating uh, on, on the media. I'm going to ask you about it. Feel free to to, to chime in or um, however you feel comfortable. But 
there's been renewed interest in looking at COVID-19 potentially as escaping uh, from a lab. And I'm just curious your thoughts. I mean, there have been uh, examples in the past, and Ebola is actually one of them, uh, where there have been some of these infectious pathogens that have escaped uh, from research labs, from, from other labs. What are your thoughts? What do you make of this circulating? Is there, is there any credit to this, do you think? Or what, do, what are your thoughts? As, if, is this even feasible? Is this even a possibility? Well, Dr. Chan, first of all, I want to assure you that we have a test for Ebola also here that we can do in our BSL-3 lab. Um, for the possibility of escaping. So uh, when we're talking about testing laboratories like ours, that is uh, very unlikely. Um, research labs where they working on the genome and actually are um, creating um, potentially new pathogens, um, that is not impossible. Um, how feasible that is, I really, as a scientist, don't have enough facts and data to go on to, to make any assertions on, the, on this topic. Obviously, this comes up um, uh, time and time again. Um, I, I do wish there was a, um, a more thorough WHO um, investigation um, that would perhaps put this um, um, to bed one way or another. Uh, I think all scientists wish for such an outcome. We also do know there's a lot of conspiracy theories uh, that have to do with the origin of the virus, vaccinations, and pretty much everything that uh, surrounds this pandemic. So I really don't have a good answer for you uh, to say yes or no. Um, I mean, that's, that's something that I wish has been set up uh, and investigated thoroughly, and those um, and everyone would believe the outcome of such uh, investigation. Yeah, so, so Dr. King, one of the terms you used earlier was BSL, and you mentioned BSL-3. So I wonder if you could explain what is BSL? Right, right. So BSL, that, that just refers to biosafety level. Um, so specific laboratories can be BSL-1, which really means no uh, particular special controls most of the clinical laboratories that you envision, like the ones in the hospital, those would be BSL-2 laboratories. And actually, most of the laboratories that we have here are BSL-2 labs, where, you know, you have a separate dedicated laboratory room and people use um, uh, PPE and there's specific um, negative pressure um, in those rooms to, to help uh, contain any contamination. But BSL-3, that's really a, a separate, completely separate um, laboratory that does not share the um, um, HVAC system with the rest of the building. It uh, has a dedicated um, generator and dedicated equipment. It's completely separate. And to work there, you have to have um, additional specific training. So we reserve that laboratory for the most contagious, most transmissible pathogens like uh, tuberculosis and uh, Ebola is a good example, anthrax and, and things of that nature. Uh, COVID-19 virus, if it was to be um, cultured, it would have to be done in a BSL-3 laboratory as well. But that's not the part that we are generally conducting here. Yeah, so I want to just sort of think about some other things here as we walk through our podcast today. But like one of the things I think about the pandemic was I had surprises over the last year. And, you know, the pandemic's still going on, but I'm not getting surprises anymore. But like, you know, as we start thinking about, you know, 
drawing our podcast to a close today, was there anything during the last year that kind of made you surprised a little bit? Well, I think the answer is many, many things surprised me uh, from, you know, we have been preparing for um, epidemics and, and a pandemic in a very theoretical sense. But of course, when it comes, it becomes a very, very uh, different thing than one would expect. We thought we were prepared and were able to handle it, um, you know, efficiently. And, and I think we have in, in many ways. But of course, there were many surprises. The supply chain management is not something we have given a lot of thought to um, in the past. And we talked about it earlier as we were speaking. I think what surprised me the most is um, really how um, our um, employees here, laboratory staff have stepped up. I mean, that the hours that we all had to put in, especially at the very beginning when we were the only laboratory doing COVID-19 testing for several months, that this really was, uh, we had to convert from a, you know, um, kind of nine to five um, operation for five days a week to a 12 hour a day, seven days a week in a, a very short time. Uh, so people who, um, you know, could help here certainly did and stepped in and, and did whatever work needed to be done at the time. And really it's, it was for the benefit of the entire state because we never knew when the next specimen was coming from. Um, and, uh, you know, we were literally swimming in the sea of uh, specimen bags um, on some of those days. It's really, uh, this is when you wish you, we would be seeing pictures because it's the pictures that really paint uh, mm. um, the situation uh, most vividly. Yeah, I think you really bring up a lot of good points. I think, you know, one of the things that I think I, I really resonate that, you know, some of the surprises I thought, you know, were one, how long you could work in a given day. And how many hours you could work, but just how how our lab expanded to a 24-hour day, seven-day a week operation. Uh, same for our COVID unit as well. But I, I think you also reminded me of the how important supply chains were. Like, I mean, one of the things I see during the pandemic in particular was supply chains were problematic for everything. Lab supplies, toilet paper. I've even seen this now for lawn tractors. Um, there's still a problem. Ironically, we haven't seen problems with illicit drug lab supplies, which I think that just speaks to certain things about our culture. Anyways, it's been fun having you here today. I've learned a lot about our lab and it's been great to have it. One of our traditions is to have Dr. Chan close us with his final word. Dr. Chan, what's the final word for today? Great. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And I do want to thank Dr. King, not just for being on the bot podcast, but she's really one of those uh, public health heroes behind the scenes, may not be on stage, may not be in front of a camera, but she's really been leading the effort. And, uh, you know, just thank you for all your work behind the scenes, Dr. King. So in closing, I do want to leave folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is. If you wish to be gentle with others, first be gentle with yourself. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Dr. King, our guest today. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.